and welcome back to Chasing Perfection, a UConn women's basketball podcast. It has been a week since we last recorded. Two big games that UConn's played at Tennessee and at or at home against Villanova. Two com- that I guess there's a little a few similarities between the two performances, but you know, two very different types of games, two very different ways that they got to the results. There's a lot to talk about. Let's just get into it before I start uh, saying weird things. But let's start with Tennessee because I was down there for it. Most of the away games that I've been to for UConn that I've covered that I'm thinking of are either NCAA tournament games or like very actually Seton Hall might be the only one that I've been to on the road, like true road game that I've been to. So being in Thompson Bowling Arena for that game was pretty incredible. Just the the atmosphere and the history and all of that. Just it was a very unique experience and a very awesome experience. If you're a women's basketball fan, I would highly recommend and you have the ability to getting down to Tennessee for a UConn Tennessee game, assuming it happens again in the future, because I thought it was just, it's not something that you really get many other places. Like obviously UConn has it and for those big games. It certainly has that, that uh, feel to it. And then like, I imagine Notre Dame when UConn comes in is probably similar. I can definitely see South Carolina having that for certain games. I don't know who their bigger places would be or who their bigger matchups would be, but it was just all very cool. And, you know, pregame their UConn comes out, the coaching staff comes out and there, there are, you know, some moderate booze, nothing crazy. I was a little surprised by it. Thought it would have been a little more extreme. They're announcing the players and, It's still just, you know, some people are even clapping for the players. Then they announced Gino. (laughs) Oh boy, did the 25 plus years of this rivalry come back into one of the most intense boos I have ever heard in my life. Directed at a single person. So while the players and the teams and... All of that may not have much history together recently. Tennessee has not forgotten about Gino Ariema. So that was pretty incredible. And then the game, UConn looks like they're going to run away with it. They score 33 points in the first quarter, and then they manage seven in the second quarter. Tennessee gets within four. UConn didn't have too much trouble in the fourth quarter. But what did you think about the way that UConn played? Overall, overall, I thought they played well. I think we can talk about that second quarter. That yeah, the second quarter was a bit of a nightmare, but the rest of it, you know, the first quarter especially. I mean, they pretty much played a entirely flawless first quarter, and then I think they played a good second half and came away with what was a a pretty statement win. I know like Tennessee is not ranked, but I think they're probably a top twenty five team. And they they come away with a pretty big win on the road. No easy fun still. I, I think I made a statement. Oh, for sure. I mean, watching that game, Tennessee was not a bad team. They had yeah. talent. They had a pretty good idea of what they wanted to do as well and play, which I feel like is sometimes the case with these talented programs that struggle a little bit. 
or are, are struggling or or talented teams that might be struggling. In the end, it was a 17 point win, but and granted it, it being on the road makes that feel even wider, but the second quarter didn't, I'm sorry, the second half didn't feel as, you know, much of a blowout as the final score kind of indicated. <laughs> and I think it's kind of just a testament to the way that UConn plays and how good they've been this year, where they can have one quarter where they are really bad and the Gino rant at halftime. Oh, it was beautiful. It was artistic. It was exactly what this rivalry needed. And it was also just, I mean, he didn't even like mention it post game, but it was also just the most emotion driven thing he could have possibly said. Cause yes, did the ref start calling a completely different game in that second quarter? Absolutely. There's no doubt about that, but it's not like Tennessee was not being called for fouls either. The refs all night just were completely clueless as to what constituted a block versus a charge. So they just decided to call everything a charge. And UConn also struggled with turnovers. They couldn't grab a defensive rebound. They had a lot of problems in that second quarter beyond the officiating. But I don't care. That that rant by Gino was beautiful. And it was... It was the spark that this rivalry has not had since it was renewed. And I wrote about it on a weekly, how there were just a few moments in this game where it really felt like the rivalry was back to where it was in the 2000s. If you closed your eyes, Pat Summit was going to be on the other side. Tennessee was going to be number two. And it was all going to be back to the way it was. And then, obviously, that did not last. Yeah, I think that Gino moment was definitely one of them. And I've never seen him get like that in a, a mid-game interview. It was, it was something else. But yeah, it was that was the moment. I think the, some of the, the basically wrestling that was going on under the basket in the third quarter was another moment like that. But yeah, there was definitely some emotion in the game on the court that made it feel like even though, you know, you come wins this by 17 points and kind of for all intents and purposes, blows Tennessee out. Like it, it felt like that atmosphere was there a little bit. What happened on that Aaliyah Edwards, Rakia Jackson little kerfuffle there? Because <laughs> they decided to only show the replay up until they like started, like the contact actually started happening, which wasn't at all useful for actually knowing what happened and i saw all the yukon fans on twitter saying that Aliyah was innocent and it was all rakia jackson and then the next day i saw how Aliyah edwards was attempting to commit assault on rakia jackson who yes. had absolutely no part in the incident so i i i haven't gone back and looked to see what happened but what what was that little scuffle about the way they showed the angle they showed on tv it looked like I mean, Aaliyah Edwards definitely fouled Rakia Jackson. Was it intentional? I don't know. It might have been incidental. But it looked like she kind of, like, they fell together on trying to get the rebound. Aaliyah might have dragged her down a little bit with her. And then when Aaliyah Edwards was trying to get back up, Rakia Jackson basically, like, shoved her back down and shoved her foot back down. So there was definitely some some clear intentional foul from Rakia there. The Tennessee fans were indicating that, like, Aaliyah wrapped her legs around it. Her, Rikia, I don't really see that. It looked like she was just trying to get up to me, but whatever. So I think that the refs probably got it right. Yeah. 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 I feel like 
the contact from William might have been incidental, but I think in that situation you had to call it. You can't call it an incidental foul afterwards, so I think it was the right call. It was enough from both players that neither of them were fully innocent. I think that's kind of what it comes down to. And when that's the case, you can't just say, oh, well, you know, this was only a common foul, but the other player that rises to a, I don't even know what the word. Actually, you know what? I think they only called personal fouls on them. I actually don't think they just called them intentional. They didn't like elevate them or anything. So it was like an intentional foul. It wasn't a flagrant or whatever. I don't think that does anything though. Yeah, I don't I don't know how it works, but it's just like cancels out anyway, because it's like I called it on both, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, Uh-oh. either way, it, it was just another part of the night where it's like, oh, these two teams don't actually like each other, even though they don't really yeah. have any reason to dislike each other. So yeah. you could tell this was the game where it felt the most like it meant well. Uh, every game's meant something, but like mm-hmm. maybe more from a Tennessee side because they put up more of a fight compared to previous games that like they really wanted this one, especially Jordan Horston. Jordan Horston yeah. wanted that game as bad as I've seen a player want a game in a long time. I felt bad for her that like she's just doing all she can out there and like and her teammates just couldn't she couldn't drag her teammates along with it far enough to you know help UConn yeah I thought Horston was absolutely fantastic in that game she was really really good I mean she had 27 points it looks like to finish seven rebounds just yeah she was fantastic and the rest of the team really couldn't give enough to to keep up with UConn and some of that credit of course is due to UConn and their defense and things like that I mean I thought Ali Edwards was fantastic on Rakia Jackson and that's a big part of why Tennessee wasn't really able to stay in it but uh, Horson was really, really good in that game. Unfortunately, she couldn't replicate that against LSU because if she had had <laughs> just a similar night last night, <laughs> LSU would have lost. <laughs> I should have uh, sent her a message before the game, just letting her know how important that game was to me personally <laughs> so that she could channel that same energy from the UConn game. That's on me, guys. Sorry. But yeah, and then I, I kind of almost pre-game wrote my preview a little I wouldn't say tongue-in-cheek but I didn't really expect what I wrote to happen which was the previous three times they had played it had been a newcomer for UConn or a freshman that had made the difference it was Aubrey as a fresh or the first time mm-hmm. Paige hitting that game clinching shot the previous time in Nashville and then AZ Fudd going off last year in Hartford so I looked at the two freshmen and I was like, all right, I- Ayana has just come off the concussion protocol. She barely played in the previous game. I'd be a little surprised if that was her. And then if it's Inesh, Inesh, then, you know, pack it up. There's there's nothing better that's going to happen this season. That would be more unlikely. But I was like, it could be a newcomer, though. And the way Lou had played, maybe it's Lou. And I don't know how much I actually believed that when I wrote it. I just thought it was something good to write about. And then lo and behold, Lou Lopez Seneschal, if she's not the player of the game for UConn, she's number two. She was unstoppable in the backcourt when she was the only player that Tennessee had to stop, really, 
in UConn's backcourt, hit a bunch of big threes, made some key baskets. You know, I, I think Kelly Harper may need some help defensively because last year she said the goal was not to let AZ FUD shoot threes and what happened, but AZ FUD shooting threes. And this year, the uh, or Holly Rowe, I think it was reported that Kelly Harper told her team in the huddle that 11 gets nothing. And then pretty much on the next possession, Lou hit a jumper. So that seems to be a theme as well as the newcomers arising. Kelly Harper says not to let this player score, and that player immediately does what they want to do. Yeah, and I, I think for me, Lou was the player of the game because it felt like every time they really needed a basket, like they couldn't score, they needed someone to make something happen, it was her every single time. Every time Tennessee hit a big three, it, it felt like she answered it. it was every single time, like UConn needed to come up with something to keep the momentum going, almost every time it was Lou, Lou Pacinichol. And the three and a half minutes or the three minutes that she came out, what happened, but UConn couldn't do anything offensively and Mm -hmm. Tennessee got the lead within four. It was a three minute drought for UConn. They couldn't not, it it was a miserable offense in that stretch without her. So the fact that, you know, we saw what it was with her and without her on top of the way she played, I just think kind of underscores her importance in this contest. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that says it perfectly. If there was one pretty major aspect of UConn's performance to be concerned about, especially looking ahead, both in terms of the regular season and towards who they may need to go through in March, and, you know, problems that may have sunk them last season. Rebounding. They basically... When Tennessee wanted an offensive rebound, Tennessee was pretty much able to get an offensive rebound. And it wasn't quite to the degree as the national championship game because UConn was ahead. UConn led this entire game, which I think is bonkers. It did not feel like that, even though that was the case. So, like, obviously, UConn was ahead. It wasn't as dramatic. But the ability to prevent the other team from grabbing offensive rebounds all game long when both Aaliyah Edwards and Dorky Uhas and Aubrey Griffin are all healthy and all on the floor, that concerns me knowing that you're probably going to have to go through South Carolina at some point. Yeah, I agree. The The defensive rebounding was not great. And it's kind of the first time we've seen it not be great this season. It hasn't been a consistent problem. Now, I went back and watched it again the day after, two days after, kind of just watching really that piece and then also how they guarded Horston, but to try to focus on that because I think when you're watching a game for the first time, it's you can't like pick up on everything. And I feel like I was less concerned after watching it a second time. A lot of like, especially in like the, the first half, a lot of those offensive rebounds, it came when they had either Ayanna Patterson or Amari DeBerry on the floor. So without kind of that main three on the floor I'm less concerned about it and then there was just a stretch in the third quarter where it was really really bad and I think that part's concerning but I also think you can kind of chalk some of that up probably to just like fatigue and amount of minutes that these starters are playing right now and hopefully that's not going to be the situation come come March but if Ayanna Patterson's out there and it's still happening Ayanna Patterson's a really good rebounder. If she is nothing else this season, she has been an excellent rebounder. So 
if they're not getting offensive rebounds when she's out there and like you watched it and I didn't, or you rewatched it and I didn't. So I could be wrong and it could have just been a bad performance from her, but I almost feel like it concerns me a little more that the problem was partially when Patterson was on the floor. I also would say that there is a certain degree of, of like almost bounced luck. Like it felt like Tennessee got a lot of yes. those long rebounds that UConn was there. UConn was in position to get the ball. And then it just went over their heads to Tennessee who was out on the perimeter. It felt like that was a little bit of the case too. Yeah, there was a lot of those too. I didn't mention that, but yeah, I wasn't really concerned about those because a lot of that's just luck. And it was a lot of like off threes from Tennessee that just they bounce in a weird direction. And yeah, they were five of 14 for three. So there was a lot of missed threes and they don't necessarily bounce right under the rim and someone's not in position. It's just kind of, it's just the luck of where's who's where on those balls. Um, So there was a lot of that. I feel like I agree. Patterson has been a really good rebounder. I don't know that we've seen that in this first couple of games back, and that's probably just her working her way back some. But, I mean, she paid almost 10 minutes at Tennessee and had one rebound. So I just I don't know that we've, we've seen her be as good on the glass as we have kind of before the concussion. Oh, I didn't realize it was one rebound against Tennessee, but I'm pretty sure she had six and six minutes in her first game back. Granted, that was uh, against Butler. So yeah, I don't the bar is counts. <laughs> yeah, the bar is the yeah. floor there. But also looking at her numbers, she ranks in the 87th percentile of offensive rebounds per 40, but only the 72nd percentile in defensive rebounds. So right. it also could be she's just better at attacking the offensive glass than the defensive glass for whatever reason. I don't know why that would be, but that could lead a little bit more to why UConn struggled when she was out there on the floor. Yeah, exactly. I think that's part of it. And then some of it's probably positioning, too, in terms of, like, the way you had Aubrey Griffin and Ole Edwards kind of guarding the pair of Rakia Jackson and Jordan Horston a lot, and you're not necessarily inside with them all the time. So it's, you know, you're not necessarily in position to get the rebound because you're having to guard those players more out in the perimeter and more out in the mid-range. So not to, we don't need to preview South Carolina today, but just to quickly look ahead. Do we are need you to still preview con- South Carolina today? Nope. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's a week from Sunday, right? No, it's it's this Sunday. That's this Sunday? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when did that happen? <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm pretty sure we have to preview that today. Yeah, yeah, it's this Sunday. Okay, well, uh, we can preview them a little bit more in depth in a second, but looking ahead to South Carolina on this Sunday, apparently, time has ceased to make sense. Are you concerned about how UConn may fare on the defensive glass, looking at both the national championship game, the recent Tennessee game, and just the general way that UConn's been playing this season? Yes and no. I think it's always a concern against South Carolina because they're just a really hard team to compete with on the defensive glass. They have so much size and then this year so much depth that they can kind of like rotate a lot of different players in and not give up any strength in their rebounding. So I'm concerned from that perspective. I don't know that I'm like necessarily concerned from like what we saw in the Tennessee game though because all the things we just talked about, 
and this might sound weird because I don't like think that it's an easier game than Tennessee, but I think that UConn just matches up better with South Carolina, if that makes sense. Like your posts are going to be defending in the lane. You're not because Tennessee is just like this weird situation where you've got Jordan Horston and Rikia Jackson that are like both playing on the wing and are both, you know, these tall players that you kind of got to use your post players on to guard. And it's just a different defensive matchup. And I don't think you're going to have that in the South Carolina game, if that makes sense. Right. Like to just keep mixing analogies. Aaliyah Edwards was guarding Maddie Segrist, whereas in this game, Aaliyah Edwards is probably going to be guarding Aaliyah Boston, or if not Aaliyah Boston, one of their other bigs. And she's going to be in the lane as opposed to having to move around the floor. Exactly right. Like South Carolina, you the players that are you have to guard on the perimeter are their guards, and then your guards are going to be on the like it's just a little bit more of a logical, I think, like matchup. Or not logical isn't really the right word, but just it just lines up better in terms of matchups for UConn. Does UConn even need to guard anyone out on the perimeter? Has South Carolina figured that out yet? They need to guard Zia Cook. I think that's okay. really it. So, <laughs> and even even she is more of a threat on the defensive end, anyways, right? And that's Bria Beal. Bria Beal is the better. Oh yes, I I flipped them in my head. But yeah, so they need to guard Zach Cook on the perimeter. But like Nika can guard Zach Cook, so you don't have to put Aaliyah Edwards on Zach Cook. Right. Yeah. You have guards. Well, you don't have guards. However, <laughs> you have a guard who can take the other team's point guard, which is a significant upgrade to what they've <laughs> dealt with in times in the past. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I still just can't believe that game is this Sunday. Yeah, but me neither. <laughs> that means the Sunday after that is Super Bowl Sunday. Yep. Not that that means anything, but in at least in this sphere, but just you know, existentially. Yeah. <laughs> the season's basically over. That's what we're saying. Yeah, the final four is like tomorrow. It's fine. <laughs> uh, it, it's always this point in the year where it's it doesn't feel early in the year, but you still feel like you have a lot of time, but we're going to blink and we're going to be in Greenville slash Seattle, seeing if UConn goes to the final four. Yeah. It's going to go by quick. Before we look too far ahead though, let's continue looking back. UConn comes off of Tennessee. They host Villanova. Certainly no one expected it to be a pushover pregame. I thought UConn would still, you know, have a pretty easy game. And the first half kind of felt similar to the Tennessee game where UConn started really well and then faded in the second quarter. I expected them to go into the locker room, come out and then kind of do what they did against Tennessee. Whereas the exact opposite happened. They didn't score until the 333 mark of the third quarter. Tennessee took the lead and if I'm being honest, I truly thought UConn was toast and we were going to have to talk about Villanova beating UConn at the XL Center for the second consecutive season. But UConn, to just pull out all the cliches, they dug out, they dug deep, they gutted it out, and they just literally found a way to win by all five of their starters playing all 20 minutes in the second half. No one came off the floor, the floor 
and every single player made some sort of contribution at some point. Dorca had that three-pointer. Lou Lopez Seneschal didn't hit a shot in the second half, but did score their first two points of the half on the free throw line. Nika Mule hit a big three. Then Aaliyah Edwards and Aubrey Griffin were kind of the ones that carried them for a lot of that second half. So certainly not a performance that anyone, eh, Aubrey Griffin might look back on fondly, but sometimes you just got to find a way and it doesn't particularly matter how. And I think it, I, I can't really decide in my own head if I think that's their most impressive performance of the season, but there's not many above it. Yeah, it's definitely up there. I was just going to say it might be one of their best wins, if not the best of the season because of that. Because I think you could very clearly see, and Gino talked about this after the game, that they were exhausted. It was, it was evident that their starting lineup was exhausted in that game. And they still were able to f- just find a way to win. And then against a good team, too, right? Like, it's, it's not an easy Villanova team to beat. Maddie Seacrest is really, really good. And the, Villanova got contributions from the rest of their starting lineup as well, which is going to, they're better when they're doing that. So against a tough team, we're still able to find a way to win and not the way they've been winning all season too. It's been, you know, Olya Edwards and Lulubo Senatol scoring 20 points a night is how they've been winning. And they didn't get that from either of them and we're still able to win. And I think that's really important that they can win in different ways. There is a part of me that's really happy that Lucy Olson's Maybe not her first breakout game, but, you know, it seems like she's been having a bit of a breakout stretch (laughs) comes at UConn because I would just like to remind everyone that I was one of the first people on Lucy Olsen being a really good player. And I think we saw why on whatever day of the week that was Sunday, (laughs) but Ah. this is, this is not a Villanova podcast, but if you have any Lucy Olsen thoughts, you can go for it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I thought she was really good, and I think we talked so much going into that game about, obviously, Maddie Seekers versus Leah Edwards, two of the best players in the country, but the Lucy Olsen, like, Nico Mule matchup was really physical and a lot of fun, and Lucy Olsen had a great game, and, and Nika had a good game as well, and it, that was a ton of fun to watch. Yeah, it was... We haven't seen a whole lot of those. For as much of an edge as Nico Mule plays with, and as physical as she is, we haven't seen her be in a ton of battles and Lucy Olson was refusing to give Nika Mule any, any leeway in the way that she was playing. And to use a soccer term, I don't really know like a better way to describe the way that Lucy Olson played in this game. So I'm going to steal a soccer term, but her shithousery was just, <laughs> it was an A plus. I don't, she, <laughs> She didn't get under Nika's skin, but she was just so good at being that in the most endearing way possible, just such a little brat on the floor (laughs) to just mess with what UConn was trying to do. And I have no choice but to just have a really deep appreciation for it, especially because it's not like she didn't back it up either. She dropped 19 points, I think it was. So I... I agree. That was a really fun matchup in a way that I don't think we've really seen Nika have to. The type of game that I don't think Nika's had to play, but Nika is more than well suited to play. I mean, she's Croatian. I think (laughs) you learn how to trash talk at like whatever their equivalent of kindergarten is. (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. And I, I don't know that I've seen Lucy Olsen play that way with a little bit more of an edge like she did in that game. And I think it was fun to see it from that perspective, too. So a matchup. I mean, we'll get it again in February. I hope we get it a third time in the Big East tournament. It's it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. This also feels like the exact type of matchup where I could see Villanova playing better in their next game and then losing by like 15 because UConn is just going to do UConn things kind of in the same way that it went with Tennessee. Yeah, exactly. I think Villanova could play even better. And I thought they played well. I thought they played very well on Sunday, but they could play better and then UConn could still win by 25 because they just hit shots. Yeah, and they're not running on fumes or whatever past running on fumes is because the look it and it was evident even in the first quarter when they were playing pretty well is they were just making mental mistakes that Mm -hmm. we don't really see this team make like yeah there's the turnovers that they make but I thought the bigger things were on the defensive end there are a few times where they just totally missed a switch or didn't rotate and Villanova got a wide open layup or they didn't account for someone when boxing out and like Villanova was wide open under the hoop. Those are the type of things that it's not as common from this team. And like, yeah, the turnovers are there. There were even still a few turnovers where I didn't think it was a very characteristic turnover of this team. Mm -hmm. So you could kind of see that mental fatigue coming in that first quarter and then especially into the second quarter. And then, it almost felt like the physical fatigue then kicked in in that third quarter with Lou had like a pull-up jumper right outside the key that she airballed at one point. And that was when I went, okay, her legs are shot because yeah. she doesn't airball many shots, if any. So when those aren't even getting to the rim, that's when you know it's going to be a rough go. Yeah, exactly. They missed looks and not even like close misses on things that they just would normally knock down eight out of nine times and it's just you could you could tell how tired they were even just some missed layups like Aaliyah Edwards had shots hit the front rim that she normally puts in with ease so it was it wasn't like last year where they just totally laid an egg against Villanova and played poorly there was a very clear reason you could see that they were playing poorly and there were so many different things that were happening that were a direct result of that. And I I really didn't think they were going to find their energy and find the spark. But you could tell there once they scored in that third quarter, they kind of caught that spark. And both teams went flying for the next couple of minutes, going back and forth, trading baskets. But I think that was really crucial for UConn just to find that because they were dragging and dragging and that weight kept getting heavier and heavier in the third quarter. But once they got going and the crowd got into it and they were able to really start, really start going, that is when it seemed to all kind of fall into place for them. And they just slowly chipped away at that lead. And I was worried it was going to be one of those games where they get to two points this is more of a UConn men's basketball thing, but they get to two points <laughs> or they even tie it and they just can't get that basket to put them back in front. And I figured once they got back in front, they weren't going to give up that lead. Or if they did, they were going to get it back right quickly and then just continue on. And that's pretty much what happened. So yeah, there, there haven't been many performances like that from them this season. And I am... I'm not concerned that they're going to lose to Providence on Wednesday, 
but I'm a little uncertain as to what it might look like. Yeah, I think because it's Providence, I'm not too worried about it because I think they could have a worse game than they had against Villanova and still win because Providence doesn't have anyone that's like Maddie Segrist or is that the caliber that this Villanova team is. Um, But I still think they're going to be tired. Hopefully they can kind of play a good first quarter. And I mean, I think the last time they played Providence, the game was over in the first quarter. So if they can play a good first quarter and get let the subs get in and stuff like that, I think that will help. But I think it's still going to be hard. It's what, their fifth game in 11 days? And when your starters are playing yeah. 38 minutes a game on average, I think it is, that's, that's particularly difficult. Yeah, and it's not just five games in a vacuum it's a very emotional and taxing game down in Tennessee I mean I was tired after that game Mm -hmm. I was drained and I was just in the building like there was so much tension and anxiety and all of that just from the energy in the building that I wasn't even the one that played so I imagine they were tired with that you get back late from a road trip And then a second really tough game against Villanova. So it's not like it's just been five games either. It's been grinders over these last two games. So yeah, Providence isn't going to give them any trouble, but hopefully they've used these last two days for, uh, they've put them to good use in terms of recovery or whatever they need to do to get a little bit of energy back. Yeah, and even looking back to the one before that, like DePaul, yes, they won by a ton, but it's still, you know, 28 minutes for Lee Edwards of guarding Anissa Morrow. That's not an easy 28 minutes to play and things like that. So it's been a long stretch. They get to cap it off with South Carolina. Well, (laughs) South Carolina comes to the XL Center soon, yeah. They they have a little bit of a breather. It's not like this is the end of their stretch, but before we get into that, actually, I wanted to see what you thought about this. So with how tired UConn was in the second half, I've seen a lot of people saying that, well, UConn should have done a better job getting their subs in. What do you think about that? Should, could they have kind of avoided this type of performance if they used Enish Betancourt and Amari DeBerry more in that first half and in the third quarter to kind of spell them down the stretch? Or do you think the way that it worked out worked out well? Yeah, I think it's a hard call. I think because of the caliber opponents they were playing in the last two games and the the how close the game was in the second quarter uh I think both a point in both of them it's kind of hard to make those substitutions and I think that the call that Gino made was probably the right one I think when you look at especially the defensive matchups, I think that's where you're giving up the most. If you're subbing in, you know, trying to get Aaliyah Edwards some breaks and who's guarding Maddie Seagrest out on the perimeter against Tennessee, who's guarding Jordan Horston and Rakia Jackson, and you're allowing those players, and yet even if it's only a few minutes, it's a few minutes where they can kind of get a few easy baskets and that can be more consequential, I think, down the stretch. So I think it's it's a little harder to make that call or to make those changes when, yeah, Amar DeBerry has maybe been able to like play good minutes against a Butler or a Providence or even like a Seton Hall, but she hasn't necessarily shown that against a team with size or then a team like these two where you just have these kind of weird defensive matchups and that you've got all the size and a position on the wing and you've got a post player guarding on the perimeter and 
I mean, Aaliyah Edwards is better at that than most people in the country and giving that up for any extended kind of minutes, I think early on to try to get some rest could have kind of ended up costing them the game in a way or put them down more. And I think the same thing, if you look at like the Villanova matchup and who's guarding Lucy Olsen, if you take Nika Mule off the floor and she had 19 points with Nika Mule guarding her. So how much more do you give up there? So I think in a different game with a, a weaker opponent, yeah, get them the rest. But I think in these situations, it was just, it's a hard call to do. Yeah, I think you kind of nailed it with my thoughts. Would it have been nice for UConn to be able to use some subs? Yeah, but the players that they had available, I think part of it is Gino just got a firsthand look at how Ayanna Patterson and Amari DeBerry did against a high caliber team at Tennessee, and it was not great. So there's that strike against them. And I also think part of it is... I don't think the fatigue factor would have been solved by spending three minutes on the bench. I think it was deeper than that. I think it was, it was the buildup of over weeks and even months of fatigue. And then this compacted schedule really kind of amplified it, but I don't think just a few minutes on the bench would have helped them out. I, I really don't. If anything, like, once they got going in that third quarter, I think being on the court helped them because if they went down to the bench and sat and that adrenaline kind of wore off, it might've been harder for them to get going. So I think it would have been great if UConn could have used its bench. If Caroline Ducharme was healthy, I don't think UConn would have rolled with only its five starters, but that's kind of what they had to deal with. And as you mentioned, it just wasn't a good matchup. And it wasn't what UConn needed. None of those three players are scorers, as we have abundantly seen. They all have strengths, and they've all had their moments this year, but none of them are scorers. And what did UConn need in that third quarter? They need scorers. And if you're taking off someone who has the potential to score and you're sacrificing defense when they're not even really helping you that much on the offensive end to begin with, then you're almost shooting yourself in the foot by hurting both ends of the floor. So if it was a different set of players on the bench that sat the whole game, then yeah, I would have said that not subbing was a problem, but just the circumstances of it and who they had available in those moments. I don't know. Maybe Ayanna Patterson gets an offensive rebound and puts it back to get UConn on the board and that gets him going. But, or maybe Enish comes in and she had a few nice backdoor cuts with Nika Mule last game, but it would have been a high risk, high reward or a high risk, low reward proposition. I think, I don't know if the risk wasn't worth the reward. That's what I was trying to say in putting either of those players out there. So yeah. And again, I just don't think that spending a few minutes on the bench would have solved the fatigue problem. I think it ran way deeper than that. And I think it could be a little bit of a persistent problem going forward. I don't think it will be for South Carolina just because that's a big game. But, you know, out at Marquette, it's not like they have a whole lot of space in their schedule here where they get a breather. It's next week, Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, like Two games a week is better than three games a week, but 
as Gino kind of said, they don't get a bye week in the Big East schedule because that's when they play their non-conference games. The South Carolinas, the Tennessees. So I think, you know, you're going to try and steal days here and there. Like after you play Providence, maybe you just take a full day one of those or then maybe you sacrifice one of the days between South Carolina and Marquette or maybe between Marquette and Georgetown then I don't know another day, but you don't have more than three days between games at any point the rest of the year. So, Oh, I lied. They get four days between the uh, senior night on the 27th and the start of the Big East tournament on March 4th. So there you go. (laughs) That's the time you get to rest, but it's, it's going to be something they have to deal with. And maybe it just comes from, Caroline Ducharme coming back. Gino's hopeful that she'll be back. Was like soon, like, but he didn't want to jinx it. And then two to five games was kind of the range that he gave. Yeah, he said hopeful, but what it was like something hopeful. I am yeah, like I crazy exactly hopeful. Secretly hopeful. That's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> He's secretly hopeful that she'll be back in the next two to five games, which put if let's just use that as the frame, even if it's not fully accurate. That's between South Carolina, Marquette, Georgetown, Creighton, and Villanova. So you need her back at at some stretch. I think she's a really crucial piece to this, especially Mm -hmm. if she can. Like the Caroline Ducharme that we're thinking of is really important. But if it's the Caroline Ducharme that is, you know, struggling with health and isn't her normal self that doesn't move the meter a whole lot and easy fud this is not based on any information but i think i've just hit a point where i'm not necessarily counting on her to come back i'm not including her in my head thinking like oh well once easy gets back it's it's all gonna figure itself out because she was back for a quarter and a half got slightly bumped and now she is out for who knows how long so I I think it's more for my own sanity and trying to figure out this team that I'm not including AZ and whatever they do get from AZ is kind of a bonus. So that's a very long-winded way of saying that I don't think it's not like they have major reinforcements coming that they just got to get to this day and it'll all get better. Like they're just, again, going to have to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. And I think seeing them at least figure it out against Villanova is is big. I mean, that's still a hard game to win. So to figure it out enough to beat what I think they're up to 19 in the poll now, top 20 type team. I think, you know, that's as tough as you're going to see through like the Sweet 16. Right. I don't think it would take probably, not trying to jinx it, but an even worse stretch of injuries for UConn not to even be in the elite eight. And then I think the final four is like largely going to be both who they play, because I think depending on who they play, they could get to the final four with the roster that they had against Tennessee and Villanova. But there's also some teams where I think they could have a full roster available and not necessarily get there depending on who they play. So I think there's too many factors to look that far, but I, I don't see any reason that they're not at least in the elite eight competing to go for a final four. 
Exactly. And I think in those cases, you're going to see the adrenaline kick in like it did against Villanova too at some point, even if they are tired. And it's a much, I mean, kind of based on what they're dealing with, I think that's an easier schedule to deal with because you have a full week between the games. And I mean, UCF was a grinder for them this past year in the second round, but I don't expect either of those first weekend games to give them much trouble, especially being at Gamble. (laughs) Not having to travel is just only going to help them more in terms of recovery and kind of getting their energy back to a level that's at least workable. Yeah, exactly. And that's another thing this team hasn't really had a a good break in either is that they've been traveling every other game. So it's like they're home and then you're on the road and you're home and you're on the road and it'll be, you know, on at home for those first two games. And then they'll be somewhere for the second two games, but at least it's one place. You're not home and then on the road two days later. They also get that full, what is it, like a week and a half or two weeks or one week, yeah. whatever it is, before the NCAA tournament. So yeah, they've got a lot of rest eventually in their season. They just got to find a way to get there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Looking ahead to South Carolina on Sunday, I think everyone is pretty much in agreement that UConn should not be beating South Carolina with everyone that they have. And they would require some help in order to do so from yeah, South Carolina. Yeah, the expectation shouldn't be for them to the win the game. I think that is very fair to say. So then what should the expectation be? What should, what would constitute a successful loss, a a dreaded moral victory for this UConn <laughs> team? Yeah, I think it's a matter of how they play and how they lose. Like, well, obviously you want to keep it close, right? Like you don't want to get blown out. So I think that's number one thing. I think the second thing is looking at, assuming that they don't have Caroline Ducharme and they're not going to have AC Fudd back. What, how does the front court match up? I think the guard piece is maybe a piece that's going to fall into place later and is going to be a different matchup when you get to... Like whenever you play them in the NCAA tournament, assuming that you're if you're gonna make a run to the national championship game, you're gonna have to play them at some point in the NCAA tournament. But I think the big thing where you kind of struggled last year was the front court matchup. They couldn't rebound, like we said. They just South Carolina's front court of Lee Boston and all every other piece that they have there was really able to win that battle. And we've seen UConn's front court, like we talked about, be so good. So how does Aliyah Edwards, Dorky Uhas, and Aubrey Griffin match up with that group in the front court for South Carolina? And are they able to hold their own kind of how do they do in that battle, I think, is is the most critical piece looking at this game. And it's funny because Aliyah Edwards has proven herself like three times over in this past yeah. <laughs> week that, no, she's capable of playing at this level, yet if she comes out and just lays an egg against South Carolina, I think all the talk of Aaliyah Edwards, all American, even I've started to see more about Aaliyah Edwards player of the year. And I don't, I don't really think she's going to be a legitimate factor in that race, but even still all of that goes completely silent. If she just has a, I don't want to say it, a, a certain former player type performance, but <laughs> everyone knows who I'm talking about. If if she has that type of performance, I think all of that will go away very, very quickly. Yeah, I think she needs to come out and put out at least a decent performance to keep that momentum going. 
I agree. I don't think she's going to win National Player of the Year. I do think she deserves to be a part of the conversation, though. I think when you look at the other players that you're talking about as part of that conversation, she definitely deserves a spot in the conversation. In no way do I think she should win it, but I, I do think she deserve, deserves to at least be a part of that conversation. Um, so, but yeah, she'll go ahead. she'll essentially be Nafisa Collier, Nafisa's Collier se- senior year, but her, but Nafisa her, still won it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I'm trying to say. Is like, but it'll actually be justified that she's not getting these awards, or even if she's not included yeah. on some of these lists, that's at least going to yeah. be fine. But the way that Nafisa was kind of on the fringe of that conversation with Nafisa, it wasn't justified, but like, no. that's kind of where it feels like. Aaliyah should be. Yeah, it, I think Aaliyah's spot in the conversation should be what Nafisa's was, but Nafisa should have been like the front runner for every one of those awards, and that was ridiculous. But anyway, we won't. I won't get on my soapbox about that today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very funny that UConn single-handedly has three probable National Player of the Year candidates, and just two of them are hurt, and the other one is healthy. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Like if Paige was healthy, she would be a national player of the year candidate easily. Yes. If AZ the way AZ was going, she was yeah. probably gonna be the front runner for it. Mm-hmm. And now we've got Aaliyah who is on the fringe. It seems like she's getting much closer. Like I think she has a really good game against South Carolina. It, I don't know if lockup is the right word, but she'd have a pretty good track to being an All-American. Yeah. I mean, I think she's kind of already on that track. I don't think one game is going to cancel you from being an All-American. I think she's going to fall somewhere on those All-American teams. But yeah, I think in terms of like how high up she's going to go, a good game against South Carolina is going to go a long way. Okay, let's just... I'm not predicting this to happen. Let's just play a fun little hypothetical. If Aaliyah comes out drops 30 and 20 Yukon wins on the back of that performance is Aaliyah based on her entire body of work and then doing that does that push her into maybe being a front runner for national player of the year I still think it's gonna be hard to compete with like Aaliyah Boston just being the best player on what's considered the overall number one team. Though if UConn beats South Carolina, then I guess that's a, a different conversation. I think it's hard to beat with Angel Reese, though, right now. I think Angel Reese kind of is the front runner for it. But I think Aaliyah puts herself a lot more in the conversation if she has a night like that, which would be pretty incredible if she somehow has 30 and 20 against Aaliyah Boston. It would be insane. Yeah. Also, <laughs> what does it say about me that I would much much rather see Angel Reese win National Player of the Year than Caitlin Clark I think it would be much more justified for Angel Reese to win National Player of the Year than Caitlin Clark I'm very over the Caitlin Clark arguments I'm sorry she's not shooting well like she just uh, I don't really want to get down that rabbit hole right now but I just like I'm not here for it <laughs> I I understand that from a uh, a normal person's perspective but like I almost feel like I should be as anti-LSU as anyone <laughs> that exists. And yet I'm being like, yes, please give it to Angel Reese if that means that Caitlin Clark isn't getting it. Yeah. I think it's like a, well, I mean, one, it's just like, Angel Reese, like, I don't care who you're playing to average like 25 and 15 is insane. And then 
I think the second part of that is just like maybe just because there's been like the sense Caitlin Clark like in Paige Becker's step but it's like one versus the other all the time and people are going to use it to like be obnoxious about how she's better than Paige Becker's and I just don't want to read the stupidity why can't we just say that Caitlin Clark's really good without her having to be like the yes. greatest women's basketball player of all time? Like, yes, that's exactly she, the problem. I was people were comparing her on Twitter to Stewie today, and I was like, just, oh my God. just stop! Like, no, just stop. <laughs> she's she's a good player. She is a flawed player, like pretty much Most everyone players. else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, everyone else, pretty much, but not named Stewie. But yeah. <laughs> like. I think her style of play can be a little annoying sometimes, but it's probably still just more the reaction to the way she plays. Like, okay, if you want to shoot 20% on deep threes, but have everyone go nuts when you make that one, even though you cost your team like four trips up the court, then all right, sure, whatever. But like that, I think that's just what gets me is like, just because she can hit a deep three once in a while doesn't actually make her a great player. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what it comes down to. And there's parts of their game that's really good, right? Like, she has the triple-double. She's a good facilitator. She's good on the glass for a guard. But, uh, yeah, I think it's more the way that it's covered. And, like, one that, like, the deep threes is not the best part of her game. And it's always what's highlighted. And then just this, like, discourse on the internet about, like, that every time has to make it out. Like, she's, like, the best thing to ever happen when she's just a really good player. <laughs> Right. She she's real she's a great player. She's one of the better players in the country, but she's not the best and she's not ever going to be the greatest women's basketball player ever to exist. That's fine. That's the case with everyone again, not named like Brianna Stewart, Diana Taurasi, Cheryl Swoops, uh Candace Parker is who I was looking for. Like yeah. Nine, uh, even Kelsey Plum. I'll throw Kelsey Plum in there as the all-time Asia. leading scorer. Yeah, Asia. even like an Asia yeah. Wilson. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but um, this is super unrelated to UConn, but it's kind of in the same thread as what we're talking. Taylor Robertson. I have a really hard time saying that she like she really needs an asterisk next to her name on being the NCAA's all-time leading three-point shooter because it's like, oh, congrats, you did it it because you had a full half year more than every other player who has ever played the history of the sport. So, like... But, no, I saw something, though, I think it was Vocal who tweeted it, or I don't remember who it was, but she... Whoever had it, was it Kelsey Mitchell that had the three-point record before... She did it in one fewer game than Kelsey Mitchell did it in, or whoever had the record did it in. Did Kelsey Mitchell also do it in five years? I don't think so, because probably because like the COVID year was so short, or maybe she had injuries or something. Uh, who had the three point record? I need to look it up now because I need to know. It got broken I recently because Kalina had it before, it, right? Yeah. I think it was Kelsey Mitchell. And it's, this is not to like single Taylor Robertson out and call her a fraud or anything. She's just like the most recent example of this to happen. But I was looking through the record books for something else. And like everyone at the top is now five-year players. So yeah, I it's, it's something that I think is going to have to be dealt with. But like 
like you mentioned, Paige Beckers doesn't own every single UConn freshman record because her season was shortened. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, it it kind of goes both ways. I just think there has to be a way to acknowledge it. Like UConn's Kalina Green was the all-time NCAA leader in games played pretty much up until the fifth year started coming through. So like uh, in my head, Kalena Green is still the all-time, like the true games played leader. And then you have like your COVID leaders. But the, but then I go back and forth like with just myself with, well, that those are the rules. So like didn't players used to only get to play three years of college in the past? Maybe m- more men's than women's, but I don't know. Maybe that's just how it's going to be. I don't know. I don't know if I'm making sense anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I was too too busy going down the rabbit hole of doing the research. So Kelsey Mitchell did do it in four years. Um, but so I think it's because like I'm looking at Taylor Robertson's now and like the 20, she must have been injured in 2020 to 2021 because she only played 24 games that season. And then I think like. Ohio State just went a little further in the tournament than Oklahoma did, so they had some more games in some of those other years. So it's still it was one fewer games played than Kelsey Mitchell did it in. Actually, interesting. Oh well, shout out to you, Taylor Robertson. This was not a specific rant against her. (laughs) I have no problem with her, or at least I don't think I have a problem with her. (laughs) But just the general (laughs) idea of players who play five years owning career records when everyone else who played only had four years, I think is at least has the potential to be a little problematic going forward. But yeah, I mean, you play two extra big 10 tournament games and two extra or three extra NCAA tournament games a year. And that adds up over the course of four years. That's like 20 extra games in a career, which is pretty much where we are at this point in the season. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Okay, well, then on that note, that'll do it for this episode of Chasing Perfection. Thanks for listening.